you pray with me for just a moment? Our Father, we come to you this morning once again. Now, so excited to hear directly from you as we read the Bible. How amazing it is, Lord, that you have given us in a book that we can hold in our hand, literally the answers to all eternal questions. And so we pray, Lord, for attentive hearts and minds this morning. Help us to think clearly through the the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be deeply moved in our hearts to love the Lord, our God, all the more and to be moved in our affections and our actions, Lord, that we might act in a way that demonstrates that we have known and we have loved the God who saved us. Lord, open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word this morning, we pray in Christ's name, amen. I want to read you a doctrinal statement from a local church, but I want to prepare you so you understand how significant this is. The doctrinal statement has many wonderful words in it, which are familiar to us. They'll strike a chord of agreement with you because of that familiarity. You should also know this is one of four sentences that makes up their entire statement of faith. And this is the only sentence in the entire statement of faith that at some level addresses the gospel or references a gospel presentation. And then you should know that this is a church that you would know because it is in our own city. It attracts people by the thousands because in their system of theology, being a what they call a believer has no costs whatsoever, only benefits. So with that understanding, listen carefully to this sentence, this doctrinal statement. And there's a fairly vital element which has gone missing. Remember, this is the only statement anywhere in all of their literature about the gospel. Quote, we are a very simple Bible-believing church that desires to teach people how to have a vibrant and living relationship with God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who is given to all to receive Him into their lives as Lord and Savior. We are a very simple Bible-believing church that desires to teach people how to have a vibrant and living relationship with God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who is given to all who receive him into their lives as Lord and Savior. This is their entire statement concerning the gospel. Did you notice an element fairly vital that was missing? How about the head of the church, Jesus Christ? Not mentioned at all in the gospel. Now, you probably also notice the odd statement, which is never found in Scripture, placing emphasis on the Holy Spirit as the Lord and Savior. And it might be easy to say, well, this is just a lack of training or maybe an innocent oversight. It's not. This is a specifically crafted statement to define the gospel as merely getting the Holy Spirit so that you can be in a relationship with God, whatever that is. And then it sets up the weekly diet of preaching that you receive aimed at telling you how God now just wants to shower blessing and prosperity and wealth on you. In other words... God is presented as the ultimate good luck charm. And all you have to do is attend one of their services and have the Holy Spirit imparted to you, and now you get the good luck charm as well. But there's one thing which this church and many like them which malign and misrepresent the precious Holy Spirit of God, what they've neglected to do. They've neglected to listen to what the Holy Spirit actually teaches about the gospel. What does the Holy Spirit teach? 
Because if we were to listen to what the Holy Spirit teaches about the gospel, there would be a central element in his mission, his purpose, his focus. The central element of the gospel is the purpose for which Christ came, and that is to show himself, the person of Christ, the work of Christ. The Holy Spirit points totally and exclusively to Christ. And the good luck charm gospel presented by those who present a relationship with God as merely a way to make all my dreams come true, have not done what Jesus himself said is necessary to be a follower of Christ. The theme verse in our series that we're calling Costly Christianity, Luke fourteen thirty three. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Because there is a cost to following Christ. He demands all that you have, all that you are. We don't follow Christ in order to make all of our dreams come true. We follow Christ to shatter all of our idolatrous dreams, to give up our own identity as sinful rebels and to be found in Christ and in Christ alone. And today, the cost of following Christ that I'd like to highlight, I'm calling the cost of gospel defense. The cost of gospel defense. Now, I wish, and I think we all wish that that so-called statement of faith that I read, I I wish that was the exception, a weird anomaly, but today that has really become the norm in Western evangelicalism. To repackage the gospel, to repurpose the gospel of Christ, to make it less strident, less opinionated, less forceful, less confrontational. But we have before us in our text this morning, which is John 16, verses 4 through 11, John 16, 4 through 11, in this text, we have a direct look at the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus himself is giving us the lesson plan of the Holy Spirit on the true gospel. And what we're going to find is that the teaching of the Holy Spirit on the gospel is laser beam focus on Jesus Christ. His teaching is challenging, it's provoking, it's insulting, and it's hostile toward any sort of self-made righteousness. It is the pure, unvarnished, unpackaged, plain, simple, direct gospel absorbed in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, before we move into the text, really the challenge I want to highlight this morning that is the challenge before us, and that is that part of the cost of following Christ is gospel defense. That to denigrate or dilute or adapt the gospel in any way is to deny Christ. It is to deny the gospel of Christ. There are no versions of the gospel. There isn't gospel 2.1. There isn't gospel 3.2. The gospel is not like the latest iPhone that every four days you have to go buy a new one. And to not stand for the biblical gospel is to not stand with Christ. This is serious business. Because to deny the gospel is to deny Christ. To deny Christ is to deny the Father. To deny the Father is to deny the Trinity. To deny the Trinity is to deny your chance at salvation. And so this is serious business. And whatever cost, we are to defend the true gospel of Christ. Now, in our text here, Jesus has just explained the cost of personal rejection that's going to come upon those who follow him, the apostles specifically, and and all of us in, in general. And now he knows that the apostles are beginning to comprehend that the end is near for Jesus. They're comprehending this at least in some shadowed form. And we come now to John 16, the second half of verse 4 
says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? Now, earlier in chapter 4, they did ask, where are you going? In chapter 14, verse 5, but now that the conversation the conversation has gotten very real, very intense. Jesus has warned them that suffering is coming, tribulation is coming. The world's going to hate you even as it's hated me. And so he acknowledges this. Verse 6, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. There's a sadness that is apparently coming upon the apostles because of what Jesus is telling them. The, the sobriety, the reality, the harsh cold water of the suffering that is coming their way because of their stand for Christ. They can't quite picture Jesus going away as a good thing yet, and so he assures them of the incredible new era that's about to come upon them as the leaders of the the church. That is the coming of the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And so now in verses 8 through 11, the Lord is going to give a specific outline of the precise teaching of the Holy Spirit concerning the gospel. It's hard-hitting, it is direct, it is confrontational, and it's saturated to the core in the person of Christ. So we're going to look at the Holy Spirit's Christ-centered gospel message. And, and Jesus will explain that the Holy Spirit's gospel message has three key lines of evidence represented by three key words. And each of these key words has a Christ-centered concept attached to it. You'll see this as we go. Look with me at verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning, here are the three key words, sin and righteousness and judgment. Verse 9, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. That's a long way from your best life now. Sin, righteousness, judgment. Now, just to get our thoughts going here, he says that the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning these things. Convict is a word that means to expose something, to bring it to light. It's the idea of proving that the world is wrong. The world is wrong about itself. It is misjudged. It's mischaracterized itself. It's misjudged and mischaracterized God. And now the Holy Spirit will present an airtight case that the world is guilty, guilty, guilty before God and deserving of God's wrathful fury. Now, interestingly, back in chapter 15, verse 26, the Holy Spirit plays the part of the witness When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And we saw that last time. But now he is playing the part of the prosecuting attorney. And in fact, this is the only place in all of the Bible where the Spirit of God is said to be performing a work in the world. Generally, the Holy Spirit is described in terms of his work in the life of believers, right? The, the ministry of regeneration and indwelling and filling and sealing and so forth. But now he's doing the work in the world. His message is heavy. It has a negative connotation and he certainly is pronouncing the world absolutely guilty. But the Holy Spirit's purpose in convicting the world is to bring sinners to the saving knowledge of Christ that you have to start with the bad news before you get to the good news. And no one may be saved apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. 
It is the Spirit of God who draws us to Christ. And so convicting includes this idea of the proclamation of guilt. And the, the proclamation of guilt is necessary to convince the lost that they are sinners and they need Christ. You must start there. And so the Holy Spirit will present to the world these three key lines of evidence proving the guilt of the world. Here's the first line of evidence. We'll call this, the chief sin is rejecting Christ. The chief sin is rejecting Christ. Verse 9, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Because, this is a causal conjunction, the cause of the world's conviction of sin is because sin reaches its apex, it reaches its most disgusting point in the failure to believe in Christ Jesus. And that's the sin which will ultimately condemn the lost. Now, this is very logical. Why is the sin of not believing on the Lord Jesus Christ as fully man, fully God, why is that the sin that will condemn the lost? Because all other sins are then forgiven if you will believe savingly in the person of Christ. When Israel's leaders were about to try to stone Jesus to death for claiming to be the Son of God, here's what he said to them in John chapter 8. He said, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, here it is. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. They will die in their sins if they don't believe in Christ. Now the response to the Holy Spirit's convicting ministry concerning Christ, how you respond to Jesus Christ, that is the watershed issue in the person's eternal destiny. This is the continental divide where one side leads to heaven and the other side leads to hell. The rejection of Christ certainly isn't the only sin, but it is the crown of all the sins. It's the crown of all sin because to reject Christ is to reject the solution to sin. Does that make sense? That if you reject Jesus, you're saying, I don't want that which can solve my sin problem. Here's an irony for you. In just a few hours or even a few minutes from this scene here in John 16, Jesus will be put on trial. He'll be wrongly condemned to die and he will die the cruel death of a criminal. But here the Holy Spirit has put the world on trial and the Holy Spirit is vindicating Christ. We could call this the pre-trial retrial of Jesus Three times, if you remember, Pontius Pilate said that he found no guilt in Jesus, but Jesus was crucified anyway. Now, when the evidence is weighed properly, the true verdict is that the world is guilty. They're guilty of the sin of unbelief. And so the world masquerades as righteous and suppresses the evidence that shows otherwise. Listen, the, the current And the future misery of the lost is rooted exclusively in being estranged from God and refusing to be called out of that condition simply by coming to faith in Christ. Christ and Christ alone is the means of forgiveness given by God. You can't have a gospel that's about personal fulfillment. You can't have a gospel that's about enlightenment or about self-actualization or about motivation or about happiness because those so-called gospels listen carefully it turns they they turn jesus into a means to a different end 
But what the Holy Spirit is saying here is that Jesus is the beginning of the gospel. He is the end of the gospel. He is the point of the gospel. He is the gospel. Jesus isn't a means to get something else. Jesus is the goal. And our need for Christ is seen and proven by the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in showing our guilt and our shame over sin. Guilt and shame that we're the ones of whom Romans 3 says every mouth will be closed before God. But when you have Christianity being redefined as a system of motivational thinking and emotional healing, then now the gospel has been changed. One of the worst perpetrators of this recently is the author Rachel Hollis. She's so adept at changing the gospel that Christ gets forgotten. Here's what she says about guilt and shame. Quote, I don't care what religion you were raised in. You weren't taught guilt and shame by your creator. Actually, the creator, the Holy Spirit, is teaching guilt and shame right here. And Christ is the only answer, not some self-righteous self-declaration of innocence. When the unbeliever who believed a false version of the gospel without ever submitting to Christ in humble shame over sin, when that unbeliever stands before the Lord Jesus at the great white throne judgment, how far do you think he'll get by declaring, I pronounce that I have no guilt or shame? Revelation 20 verse 12 says that the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So a self-righteous self-proclamation of no guilt or shame is irrelevant because when the books are open, the truth will come out. And what is the chief sin? They did not believe and they did not submit to the saving work and lordship of Jesus Christ. And I know that doesn't sound very friendly, but it is not my job, nor is it my right to repackage the gospel because to repackage Christianity as a motivational tool to have a happy life That's the ultimate cruelty. How cruel is that? Because that so-called happy life spent in in shallow evangelicalism and reading the latest popular books by 20-somethings who know nothing about the true gospel ends in a fiery, eternal torment that lasts forever. That's cruel. That's unfriendly. And so the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning sin. There's a second line of evidence convicting the world is guilty. The only acceptable righteousness is Christ's. The only acceptable righteousness is Christ's. Verse 10, Jesus continues, continuing con- concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. The Holy Spirit is pointing to Christ as the only truly righteous person as both God and man. And he's using this proof that Jesus is going to the Father. What is this saying? Well, he's alluding to the post-resurrection ascension of Christ into heaven. What's the ultimate vindication of the, the, the perfection and the deity of Jesus Christ? It's the fact that he said he's going to die and be raised from the dead and then he's going to his Father. He died, he was raised from the dead, and he went to his Father. I mean, what kind of person can predict that he'll be standing with his friends one day and be taken in his perfection into heaven in visible, observable form. Anyone can predict that. And Jesus did. He said in John 14, Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but 
you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. What do we generally call a person who says, I'm going to be standing with you, and then one day I'm just going to kind of rise up into the sky and go to heaven? We generally call that person a lunatic. Jesus said it, but only Jesus can actually do it. Acts 1 verse 9, when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Interesting little note here. Some of the scriptures concerning the ascension of Jesus Christ are passive verbs, meaning he is taken up. And some of them are active verbs, meaning he went up. That he consciously said, it's time for me to go to heaven and simply went. So here's the question the Holy Spirit gives to the unbeliever. Do you possess enough righteousness to stand on your own merits before God? What would the world say? Absolutely. Yes. Which in and of itself proves a lack of righteousness because righteousness is by definition a lack of sin. And to say I am righteous is sinful. This is a false righteousness of humanity for which the Bible has an answer. Isaiah 64, 6 famously says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Literally, we're blown away by our own sin. It's so disgusting. In fact, the false righteousness of mankind would actually dare to stand in judgment over Jesus himself. John 5.16 says this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. They're judging him as doing something wrong on the Sabbath. What did Jesus say about himself? He said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the one who invented the Sabbath. As a matter of fact, the very first Sabbath, the seventh day after creation, who was the one who was resting from all his labors? It was Jesus, the creator God. But the world argues against Christ Instead, they go through a quick two-step process to determine that they're righteous or that they're good, to determine righteousness and goodness. Step one, to determine your own self-righteousness. Create a false standard, which I'm already living up to. And step two, seeing that I'm living up to the standard I created, I declare myself good. That's what the world does. I look in the mirror. I make that the standard. Oh, look, it's me. Therefore, I'm good. But listen, all the arguments in the world are to no avail because the standard by which humanity is judged is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And can I say this? Whether you agree or disagree with that is absolutely irrelevant. Lately, political candidates have been attempting to misuse the Bible to justify sinful, hateful, unrighteous agendas. And you know what Psalm 2 says is happening? Heaven is laughing at them. Not just because their hermeneutics are the worst I've ever seen. They're laughing. You dare stand in judgment over God? That gives heaven a belly laugh. To be righteous in your own sight, in your own right, you must live up to the perfection of Christ. He is the only standard. But of course, that's impossible. So the Spirit shows the world that righteousness is not what they think it is. It isn't acquiring merit before God by their own efforts. In fact, that's the very definition of what? Self-righteousness. One writer of inspirational material writes of herself, quote, I'm a good person. 
I've got a purpose in this world. I'm a good person. I remind myself that I'm a good person at least twice a week, usually while I'm driving home from work. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Well, what's the problem here? She's come up with her own standard of goodness, which she describes as having decided to accept herself and to accept her own self-made belief system. But if goodness is defined as self-acceptance, then by the same definition, Adolf Hitler was good because he had no problems with himself. He was perfectly self-accepting. But then the same people who pronounced themselves good, they, they would cry out, no, Adolf Hitler was not good. What are they actually doing? They just admitted that there exists a standard of goodness, a standard of righteousness, which goes beyond humanity, which is superior to humanity, superior to human opinion. And the Holy Spirit declares that this standard of righteousness, which is beyond humanity, beyond human opinion, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the measuring stick by which all are measured. And so the world is prosecuted on the basis of the righteousness of Christ as the standard of holiness and uprightness. Because the one who knows the hearts of every human being has declared in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, none is righteous, no, not one. Because none stand up to the measure of Christ. And so the only hope of righteousness for humanity is to look to Jesus who is the righteous one. And this is, of course, where we see in Scripture the glorious doctrine of justification. Justification is the hinge on which the, the true gospel opens. Romans three twenty three and 24, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. It has to be a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be justified? It means that God will graciously credit you with the perfect righteousness of Christ to treat you as if you are Jesus. In fact, so much so that you'll go to where he is, you are an heir of all that he has. You will be like him. That's the good news. And someone who's being honest might say, but if I'm being credited with the righteousness of Christ, what happens to all my sin? God is just. And I know he doesn't wink at sin. He is not Santa Claus. Sin must be dealt with. Well, the answer is simple. While you're credited with the righteousness of Christ, Christ was credited with your sin. Galatians 3.13. This verse is hard to read. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Can you fathom this, that the Son of God was judged as if he was the most disgusting, vile, heinous sinner of all time? Because on him was the weight of all the sin of every single person who had ever come to faith in him. And so God treated him as if he were worse than the worst of the worst. So can you stand before God? Only if your righteousness matches Christ's as the only standard. And since you can't match Christ's righteousness, God graciously credits you with Christ's righteousness. Unbelievable truth. But that meant humbling yourself, right? You remember that day. You remember the day that you had to admit that the Holy Spirit is right about you, that you're not righteous, and that you would not come to saving 
faith without placing all your trust in Christ's person and work, his payment on your behalf. The day when you had to admit who you really are. The Holy Spirit convicts the world with proofs of guilt. The chief sin is rejecting Christ. The only acceptable righteousness is Christ. And there's a third line of evidence convicting the world as guilty. Christ has crushed Satan at the cross. Christ has crushed Satan at the cross. Verse 11, the third line of evidence concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Satan is judged. This is a perfect tense verb. It's not a temporary thing. It's definite. It's permanent. The downfall of Satan at the hands of Christ was predicted all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. In other words, Christ would be injured, but Satan would be crushed. And at the cross, Jesus essentially disarmed Satan and all of his demonic realm in that salvation in Christ renders them powerless over human souls. In Colossians 2.15, he, that is Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Hebrews 2.14 says that by his death, Jesus Christ destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. In 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This is good news because the devil is way more powerful than you are. But the Bible says greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Earlier in John, Jesus predicted the coming downfall of Satan. He said in John 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. In fact, in John's gospel, judgment is directly connected to the coming of Jesus Christ and his authority to carry out judgment. John 3, 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. There's the connection between judgment and the coming of Christ. John 5, 22, for the father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son. In John 5.27, he has given them authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. This is a reference to Daniel chapter 7 in which the Son of God as a human being is given all authority to judge and rule the earth. Now, you live in this world and I live in this world and so you look around and, and we don't say, I don't feel like this is a world where Satan's been driven out. There's a lot of evil here. The driving out of Satan is a work in progress. And from our perspective, as those still on earth, there is still spiritual danger from Satan. 1 Peter 5.8 warns us, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But from Christ's perspective, Satan's defeat is already an accomplished fact. Currently, at this moment, Satan is allowed limited access to God. We see this in the book of Job when Satan appears before God to give an account of himself, to be limited by God in the scope of what he could do. He is the accuser who, if he was able, would snatch your salvation away from you by means of his constant, incessant accusation. But thankfully, Romans 8, beginning in verse 33, tells us, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. But midway through the great tribulation, Revelation 12 records what will happen. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Why do you need an intercessor? Because you have an accuser also. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Listen to this. Because he knows that his time is short. 42 months later, when Christ returns, Revelation 20 records, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released For a little while, Christ will reign on earth, but the mortal survivors of the great tribulation will continue to have children for a thousand years. Revelation 20 continues, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Or, as Jesus just said in verse 11, the ruler of this world is judged. And he knows it. Now, someone might say, I I don't agree with you on pretty much everything about Jesus and righteousness, but if there is a Satan, I'm really happy that he's judged. I'm happy that he's going to be taken out. I can't bear to hear the word of Christ, but I'm glad Satan is going down. No, you're not. Why? Because Satan is your father. He is your father. Jesus said in John 8, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Well, I don't feel like Satan's my father. Well, he's an accuser. He doesn't want you to feel that way. He doesn't want you to know. But it is Satan who wants the gospel to be diluted. It is Satan who wants to convince people to believe the lie of their own self-righteousness. And it is Satan who wants the world to see Jesus as a good luck charm or a motivational character to give you a good life now. That's Satan's work. And it gets even more serious than this. Not only is Satan already judged, Whoever does not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is already judged. John 3, 18. 
Whoever believes in him, that is Christ, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe, listen to this, is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The unbeliever doesn't somehow start in a neutral camp. He's condemned now. He's ripe for hell now. He's suspended by a thread over the lake of fire now. It isn't somehow God waiting to the end of your life to make a decision about you. If you're not in Christ, the decision has been made. You are judged in your sin. You are abandoned in your sin. You are punished in your sin. It's already decided. Now, this is when the third word in our text, this key word judgment, comes into relationship with the first two key words, sin and righteousness. Listen carefully. What is judgment? Judgment is merely the setting beside one another the sin of humanity and the righteousness of Christ. That's judgment. And if you don't measure up in your sin to the righteousness of Christ, then you are judged. When I was in college, I played in the horn section of a little band for fun. We were terrible. I'm so glad there's no recordings left. We, we played at various small-time events. We were so bad that at one time at a performance... Part of the band played a song in a different key than the other part of the band did. It was worse than 15 cats fighting. But in our little band was a trombone player, and he couldn't play in tune if his life depended on it, which isn't so bad, but what was worse was that he insisted that he was always in tune. And so in one rehearsal, the band leader pulled out this electronic tuner. And the electronic tuner gives you an objective standard And he played the little note. And he said to the trombone player, play your note. It was terrible. It was two two fights, uh, cats fighting. This horrific thing that was sound was happening and all of us were covering our ears. And the band leader had this big smile on his face because he had just proven the trombone player wrong. Trombone player declared, well, there's clearly something wrong with your tuner. He couldn't live up to the standard. Listen, when humanity wants to declare its own standard of righteousness, its only recourse then is to declare that there's something wrong with the only true standard, something wrong with Christ. And so the gospel, which is centered on and focused on the person and work of Christ, now has to be altered to fit some version of religious self-righteousness. But when sin and righteousness are compared side by side, when the sin of humanity is placed next to the righteousness of Christ, the world, Romans 3 says, is silent. There are no arguments. Every mouth is closed. There is no argument to be made. Here's a contrast for you. Here's what the gospel says. Satan and all who reject Christ are already judged. But the believer in Christ is already vindicated. 1 John 2.14 says of the Christian, you have already overcome the evil one. You're already forgiven. You're already fit for heaven. You're already prepared. You're already destined. And so the Holy Spirit gives three lines of evidence concerning the guilt of the world around sin and righteousness and judgment. The world has gotten it wrong on all three counts. The world believes that Jesus was a mere human who deserved to die. The world shouts, crucify him. The world believes that humanity is its own standard of righteousness and the world believes that it has rightly judged itself as worthy. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to rectify 
and to alter that sinful, erroneous thinking. And the sinful human being is meant to look at the airtight case of the Holy Spirit and to plead guilty and to cry out for mercy because here is the mercy and the grace and the tenderness and the kindness of the gospel that those who are already suspended by a thread over the lake of fire may be rescued and redeemed and placed into the camp of those who are already vindicated. That it's not too late as long as there is breath in your body. But listen, Satan doesn't give up easily. He has many clever ploys to keep the Holy Spirit from making his case to the world. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Anything that Satan can do to keep the world from Christ makes him happy. And one of the ways Satan blinds the minds of the unbelievers is is to try to alter and hurt and twist the major means by which the Holy Spirit convicts the world. How does the Holy Spirit convict the world? How is he preaching to the world? It is through the church. It's through the church of Jesus Christ, who is, as 1 Timothy 3 says, the guardian and the, the proclaimer of the truth of the gospel. The Holy Spirit preaches to the world, as it were, through the church. And so I want to spend a little time on this. And I want to give you four roles that the church has to facilitate the message of the Holy Spirit to the world. These may seem obvious, but in a world where so many churches have slidden off the tracks, a return to the obvious is necessary. Four roles the church has to facilitate this true gospel message. The first role is the role of preaching. The role of preaching, I don't mean someone standing up front talking. That doesn't make it preaching. I mean preaching as demonstrated in the scripture itself. The conclusion of Peter's sermon in Acts 2 was not a call for self-actualization. It was not a call to be motivated when you go to work on Monday. Acts 2, beginning in verse 36, Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? That's what preaching does. It makes you say, what shall I do? This is preaching used by the Holy Spirit to cut to the heart, literally to pierce. Can I put it this way? Preaching is not a day at the spa. It's a day in heart surgery. And it includes incisions and sutures and recovery. You ever heard a sermon you had to recover from? This is why Paul commanded to Timothy, Commanded Timothy, preach the word, not use the word as a rubber stamp for whatever idea you want to talk about. Listen, Satan loves biblically illiterate churches. He loves those churches because then the pastors become tempted to please the people, which then hides the gospel. There is a reason that the Bible is called the sword of the spirit, not the spa of the spirit. It is the means by which he cuts to the heart of our sin and the means by which he encourages and strengthens and builds us up. Here's a second role that the church has. We'll call this one the role of inviting. The role of inviting. Oh, there's been 10,000 different evangelism programs. You know what the evangelism program of the early church was? It was come with me. That was it. Come with me to hear the gospel. Come with me to hear the word of God proclaimed. And in fact, in a time prior to the completion of the New Testament, 
when many in the church were proclaiming the word of God prophetically, the unanimous nature of the church as loving the gospel and loving Christ as worshipers of Christ, this was the cause of new converts, the cause of new disciples. 1 Corinthians 14, beginning in verse 24, says, If all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Can I put it this way? Which is more powerful to the unbeliever? It is, is it for you to have a one-on-one conversation or for the unbeliever to see 300 people who love Jesus? Well, obviously, the latter. Don't give up on the one that you've tried to get to church to hear the gospel. Who cares whether you jeopardize your relationship or not? Their souls are in jeopardy. Their souls are in jeopardy. I don't know if you know this, but we do at Grace Bible Church have Invite Your Friend to Church Sunday. Did you know that? It's today. And next Sunday, and the following Sunday, and the following Sunday, because I will make you a deal. If you will bring your lost friends, I will proclaim the gospel. It's a fabulous system that the Lord has been using for 2,000 years. There's a third role that the church plays. We'll call this one the role of obedience. The role of obedience. Oh, how Satan loves to get people into the church who seem to want to take Attention and time for themselves for no other reason except that they love their own sin. Now, absolutely, the leadership is called to shepherd the flock, but not ultimately at the expense of maintaining the priority of proclamation and discipleship. I have known pastors who spend 80 to 90% of their time dealing with problems and 10% of their time studying and preaching. That's backwards. That's backwards. Just remember this, every time you want to cause a problem in your marriage, every time you want to cause a problem in your family, every time you want to cause a problem because you have sinful habits you refuse to address, Satan is more than happy to use that to slowly sidetrack and weary and discourage the church who is to be about the business of proclaiming the gospel to the lost. So when you're obedient, when nobody sees, you're actually helping the gospel proclamation. One more, the fourth role the church plays is the role of unity. The role of unity. What can cause disruptions to unity, which derails a local church's ministry? Let me give you three causes, disruptions to unity. The first one is unfaithful shepherds. Unfaithful shepherds. The shepherds are called to preach the word. They're called to stay true to the biblical gospel regardless of the cost. But when the shepherds stray, the sheep become divided, sadly, into those who are more faithful than the shepherds and those who are blindly following the shepherds down a dark alley of deception that divides the church. Now, yes, there will always be divisions in the church as long as there's faithful preaching, those who are saved and those who are lost. That's the division. Unfaithful shepherds is another disruption to unity, arrogant sheep. Arrogant sheep, John wrote to a specific local church in 3 John, and he openly said, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. The authority that the Lord Jesus has set up in the church is the authority of elders. And just because you don't like something doesn't mean you get to change it. This is the power seeker who thinks himself more grand and entitled than others. He deserves more time, more attention than others. Not because there's a real and tender shepherding need, which of of course we want to tend to those, 
but just because of a sense of entitlement. And that's not about you. It's not about leadership. It's about derailing the church from the job of proclaiming the message that the Holy Spirit has given. That's what it's about. And then there's a third distraction, sheep-to-sheep problems. Sheep-to-sheep problems. This is Satan's ploy to distract from gospel proclamation. The Philippian church enjoyed unity. In chapter 1, Paul thanked God for their partnership with him in the gospel. But remember in chapter 4, he had to address two women in the church who refused to get along for the sake of the gospel. And he assigned a person, he assigned a leader in the church to deal with that issue. Wouldn't it have been better if that leader in the church had spent his time proclaiming the gospel and discipling? But instead he had to deal with two women who were too haughty to just figure it out. Now the Apostle Paul dealt with all three unity disruptions in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, beginning in verse 12, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, Be at peace among yourselves. He just addressed all three. Unfaithful shepherds, arrogant sheep, and sheep-to-sheep problems. Now, why are these things so vital? Why why are these roles of the church so vital? The, The role of preaching, the role of inviting, the role of obedience, the role of unity. These are vital because by acknowledging these and being careful with these, we are now properly using ourselves as God's tool in the hands of the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel of Christ. How sad it is when a local church gets so twisted and upside down that they no longer represent the message. So keeping the message pure is costly. There is a price. Staying true to preaching, inviting, obedience, unity is costly. But this is what we're called to. This is what the Lord Jesus himself said, what it means to follow him. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And then the great day will come when the cost is done and all the benefits just roll in. Won't that be a great day? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you and we bless you for a text that's very challenging to us. It is hard-hitting, it is direct, it confronts our self-righteousness, it peels away the layers of deception of a false gospel. And the Spirit of God has convicted the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Oh, but how thankful we are for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in that gratitude, Lord, that we want to gather now in our final moments together to celebrate the Lord's table. We, we thank you and we bless you, Lord, for sending your dear son. And as he called us to remember his body and his blood, it is my prayer that in these final moments, Lord, that we would worship you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we would think upon the death of Christ, which purchased everything for us, purchased so much for us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.